Well, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, coming back from the break. I want to begin by saying just a heartfelt thank you to all of the presenters so far today who have done a wonderful job. It's the start of the academic year for a lot of them, and they took time off before a three-day weekend to, in many cases, fly across the country to come here. So uh, thank you very much for your participation so far. We're now at the last panel of the day. One of the lessons I think we can take away from the panel so far is that the findings in economics, whether on the wages and labor market front, the entrepreneurship front, the impact on real estate, are fairly positive for the United States due to immigration. There's not a lot that you can point to where the effects are negative, and if they are, it's for a fairly small uh, group of people. But the net benefits are large uh, for Americans and especially for the immigrants themselves. What we're going to be talking about today on this last panel is one of the ways in which uh, immigration theoretically could become a uh, negative under certain circumstances. Uh, a few facts, first off, a lot, the majority of immigrants today come from countries a lot poorer than the United States, uh, for example. And in the economics literature, there are several reasons given for why countries are poorer than others. Uh, some of them focus on institutions, sort of a fancy economics term for the rules of the game, both informal and formal. Formal being the laws of the government, the state, uh, tax policy, property rights, contract rights, trade, uh, monetary policy, these types of things matter tremendously in terms of their outcome on economic growth and the wealth of societies. Big examples might be the difference between North and South Korea. Uh, radically different institutions, uh, same language, same culture, split down the middle with very different outcomes. There are also uh, cultural uh, issues that are raised by many people, differences in cultures, certain things that are incentivized in some and not in others that could be influential in discussing why some societies are wealthy and some aren't. And then there's, of course, mysterious other channels that we'll be talking about, uh, their potential for uh, impacting this. Now, since immigrants come, a lot of them from countries with worse institutions, uh, definitely different cultures, and other sort of mysterious other factors uh, that could influence growth on this fundamental level, uh, it's possible that if there were enough and they brought with them these other ideas or fundamentals about institutions, that the positive economic effects that we've seen so far could turn negative in the long run if they undermine the institutions of the United States or other wealthy countries, um, uh, which are some of the foundations uh, for economic growth uh, here. So I think today we are fortunate, therefore, to have uh, about half of the scholars in the world who do work on how immigrants impact these sort of fundamentals of growth on this panel today. Um, so we're very fortunate in that regard. Uh, first, we're going to have uh, Michael Clemens uh, give his first presentation. Michael is a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development, where he leads the Migration Development Initiative. His current research focuses on the effects of international migration on people from and in developing countries and on rigorous impact evaluation for aid projects. He also serves as CGD's research manager directing the center's engagement with the academic research community through peer review, 
for center publications, research seminars and conferences, academic fellowship positions, and numerous other ways. He is a research fellow of IZA, the Institute for the Study of Labor in Bonn, Germany, and an affiliate of the Financial Access Initiative at New York University. Clemens joined the center after completing his PhD in economics at Harvard University, where his fields were economic development and public finance, and he wrote his dissertation in economic history. His past writings have focused on the effects of foreign aid, determinants of capital flows, and the effects of tariff policy in the 19th century and the historical determinants of school system expansion. In 2013, his research was awarded, awarded the Royal Economic Society Prize. Following Michael, we will have Ryan Murphy. Ryan is a research assistant professor at the O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom at Southern Methodist University. He received the PhD in economics from, Southern, uh, from Suffolk University in 2013. He has published widely in academic and non-academic journals. And uh, if you ever want to look at his CV online, it is actually quite remarkable how quickly he publishes uh, so many journal articles and so many different uh, venues. His research interests are diverse and include institutional economics, public policy, macroeconomics, and immigration. Uh, ben finally, we will end with uh, Benjamin Powell, who is the director of the Free Market Institute and a professor of economics in the Jerry S. Rawls College of Business Administration at Texas Tech University. Professor Powell is a North American editor of the Review of Austrian Economics, past president of the Association of Private Enterprise Education, and a senior fellow with the Independent Institute. Professor Powell is the author of Out of Poverty, Sweatshops in the Global Economy, editor of Making Poor Nations Rich, Entrepreneurship in the Process of Development, co-editor of uh, Housing America, Building Out of a Crisis, and editor of the Economics of Immigration, Market-Based Approaches, Social Science, and Public Policy. He is the author of more than 50 scholarly articles and policy studies. His primary fields of research are economic development, Austrian economics, and public choice. He earned his BS in econ and finance from the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, MA and PhD in econ from George Mason University. So without further ado, Michael Clemens. Thank you so much for being here and for staying this long. Uh, two economists, one American and one British, are uh, discussing the reasons that they support a large government intervention to restrict uh, immigration. Uh, two big reasons, wages and institutions. The American economist says, it is obvious that immigrant competition must reduce wages. His British counterpart, I entirely agree with you that it must diminish their wages. Nothing can be more fallacious than the attempts to make out that there is any compensation to those whose labor is displaced. But not just that, there's a second reason they support this intervention, and it's institutions. Maybe a, a bigger question of, of uh, the effect of immigration on the uh, culture and institutions that underpin the entire economy. The American writes, such an admixture of peoples would be to the degradation of the superior civilization without any commensurate improvement of the lower. And his British interlocutor responds, only a temporary good is done to the migrants while a permanent harm is done to a more civilized and improved portion of mankind. Now these are uh, arguments that might be very familiar to you because they're, they're, uh, they're around all the time. I want to point out a few things about this conversation. The, the first is that it's happening in 1869 uh, between uh, the biggest of the big shot economists. Uh, the American is Henry George. The British is John Stuart Mill. 
And they were arguably uh, the leading economists in each of their countries uh, at the time. Uh, the second, oh, and, the, and the policy intervention they're discussing, uh, is a total and complete shutdown of immigration by ethnically Chinese people to the United States. Uh, the second thing I want to point out is that uh, neither of them offers any evidence for these assertions that they're making uh, uh, very uh, confidently about the effects of, uh, of migration or the effects of restriction. The, the third is that they got what they wanted. Uh, 13 years later, there was, in fact, a total and complete shutdown of uh, immigration to the United States by ethnically Chinese people from any nation, and it lasted 70 years. Uh, and the fourth thing is that there wasn't any evidence then, uh, nor is there any evidence now, that that policy achieved the goals that these uh, very smart people uh, confidently claimed for it. There's no evidence that Chinese exclusion raised American wages. There's no evidence that the uh, uh, proper functioning of the US uh, economic institutions depended upon Chinese exclusion. Now, uh, these conversations have uh, continued. It's 147 years later. Uh, many of you were here this morning to hear about the latest research on wages from, uh, from a few of its uh, top proponents. So I won't talk about that. Um, but what I find remarkable is that although the, the wage conversation came back in the 1980s and continues uh, in the economics literature, this second conversation about the uh, bigger effects of immigration on the entire economy through the, through the channel of, uh, of economic and uh, other institutions uh, only came back uh, pretty recently. And we were just talking at the coffee about what fraction of, of, of research in immigration economics is, is on uh, its effect on relative prices like wages and, and how much is, uh, is on these uh, larger, well, let's say broader questions of, about the wealth of nations. And it's something like 98.2 or 99.1. There's very little about uh, the effect of migration on the wealth of nations, with some notable exceptions. So uh, a few years ago, I wrote a paper called Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk, uh, trying to explicitly to nudge economists to look more at this, uh, this other and more neglected uh, question of the, the effect of migration on, uh, on the broader wealth of nations. And it, it's, a, it's a very simple paper. It, uh, it just says, look, now that we have pretty good evidence that the productivity of a worker depends critically on location. That is, the economic productivity of exactly the same worker, even performing exactly the same task, can vary by an order of magnitude depending on what country they're in. That has a, a remarkable implication, which is that natural and policy barriers to labor mobility between countries could be enormously costly. Uh, for example, there are estimates that uh, uh, barriers to the movement of just 5% of the current population of developing countries to developed countries uh, cost the world economy trillions of dollars a year more collectively than all remaining barriers to trade and all remaining barriers to international capital flows. Very large uh, uh, effects. Uh, there has been a response to these uh, uh, claims in the literature. And it's what Lamp Pritchett of Harvard and I call the new economic case for migration restrictions. And it focuses on these uh, exact same uh, uh, arguments in the second point that uh, George and Mill were talking about in 1869. Uh, it's, uh, it's been the subject of discussion by another British and another American economist uh, uh, many, many generations later. Uh, so the idea is that people from poor countries, when they migrate, don't just experience higher productivity themselves, 
they reduce the productivity in general of the people around them in the place that they arrive by spreading bad productivity to those people. And for that reason, uh, I'm not making this up, in the literature it's called the epidemiological model. Uh, Raquel Fernandez of, of NYU has an authoritative handbook chapter on this subject and that's what she calls it. And the, the, the analogy is, is, uh, is to disease. Uh, so here uh, is a British economist, Paul Collier, in a book three years ago, making this case. Uh, I don't want to, uh, I want you to know that I'm not mischaracterizing it, so I'll just read it if you don't mind my reading it. Migrants are essentially escaping from countries with dysfunctional social models. The cultures or norms and narratives of poor societies, along with their institutions and organizations, stand suspected of being the primary cause of their poverty. Uncomfortable as it may be, migrants bring their, cult their culture with them, with the potential risk that the social model of the migrant destination countries will become blended in such a way that damagingly dilutes its functionality. So an American economist, uh, George Borjas, reviewing this book in the Journal of Economic Literature last year, uh, puts together a little model of how the epidemiological model might bring about uh, the result of canceling the gains to the, the, the simple economic gains to migration. And he parameterizes uh, with lambda the fraction of low country total factor, of poor country low total factor productivity that comes along with migrants. If lambda were equal to 0.75, Borjas writes, that is 75% uh, of the uh, uh, bad total factor productivity from poor countries comes along with migrants embodied in them, the net gains to global labor mobility become negative because now the entire world's workforce is largely operating under the inefficient organizations and institutions that were previously isolated in the South but have now spilled over to the North. Uh, he concludes the article with this uh, diamond of rhetoric. Beware of social engineers who promise the existence of trillion dollar bills on a mythical sidewalk at the end of the rainbow. Those promises are often based on flimsy modeling and inadequate evidence. Now, I'm, I'm not sure uh, which researcher he's referring to. Uh, it, uh, it, it sounds like quite a, a, a deluded and, and naive uh, person who must cut uh, quite a pathetic uh, figure. But what makes this statement even more remarkable is, is that he, he doesn't offer any actual evidence of this effect, much like uh, Henry uh, George and, uh, and John Stuart Mill generations ago. Uh, it, it's a conjecture that the effect uh, might happen. And stepping back from maybe unfortunate rhetoric like this, uh, we can't rule this out. And it, and it is plausible that at some, there must be some uh, very large stock of migrants from poor countries or uh, very large flows of migrants from poor countries that would be associated with a change of, of institutions. That's, not, uh, that's certainly not implausible or impossible. The question is, where, where, would, that, uh, where would that rate uh, lie exactly? And uh, um, it, it's, it's remarkable to see a, a, an evidence-free discussion of that in 1869, and then an evidence-free discussion continuing 146 years later, as if nothing from which we could learn anything had happened uh, in between. So what, what Lane Pritchett and I do in our paper is say, well, what's the, what's the simplest way we could start uh, to look at the evidence on this question? There is quite a variance across countries in the stock of poor country migrants there, that is migrants born in countries with low total factor productivity. Um, is there an association between that stock 
and lower levels or lower growth of total factor productivity. That's simple to do in the Penn World tables. And uh, what you see here on the horizontal axis is the fraction of a country's population that is made up of migrants uh, from countries with less than three quarters of US total factor productivity. Uh, uh, poor countries with low total factor productivity. And on, on the vertical axis is growth of total factor productivity over a 20 year period. There is no relationship here. Now, uh, th this is just, a, if you were here this morning, this is just a, a kind of an international version of what Giovanni Peri showed you about the relationship between areas in the United States with very large uh, uh, stocks or, uh, or uh, growth in, in uh, the number of international migrants and uh, the productivity of labor in those areas. We don't see any evidence uh, uh, in, in variance across the stocks that we, that we observe. Uh, uh, of a relationship between those stocks and uh, lower levels or lower growth of total factor productivity. However, it is, uh, again, not inconceivable that somewhere way out to the right of this graph uh, in regions we don't observe at very high levels of migration, very high stocks of migrants from poor countries, there would be such an effect. So what Lane Pritchard and I do in the paper is put together a little model of the things that would determine uh, that effect and, and uh, 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 use uh, data on migration that we know about right now to calibrate that model and ask what would be dynamically efficient migration? That is, what would be the rate of migration uh, uh, that would be so high that it would just offset the uh, pure economic gains from uh, spatial reallocation of labor? Um, so I won't go through the model. It's incredibly intuitive. Uh, it depends on, on three things that uh, are, are not difficult to imagine. The first we call transmission or tau. This is the fraction of uh, low total factor productivity that is transmitted to my countries of migrant destination along with migrants. The second, assimilation. And here we're just talking about assimilation in terms of productivity, is the rate at which that transmitted uh, low total factor productivity dissipates once you arrive in the country of destination. Uh, and what we parameterize as uh, congestion is, is simply nonlinearities in these, uh, in, in transmission and assimilation. That is, it could be that at very high stocks or flows of migration, the uh, transmission is higher and assimilation uh, is lower. Now, uh, before just uh, talking about a couple of results and concluding, I, I want to talk a little bit more about what we should expect about these parameters, what they, what they mean. So uh, before thinking about the plausibility of very high transmission of total factor productivity, you would want to do something that Collier and Borjas don't, which is uh, 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 seriously dig into the development and growth literature for what economists know about what total factor productivity is. And uh, Lance and I, you could do it various ways, but Lance and I classify uh, those explanations for total factor productivity, the, the differences between the wealth of nations, uh, uh, aside from, from uh, factor stocks uh, in five strands. That, that is, total factor productivity, you could imagine it as knowledge. Uh, how exactly uh, do you build a 747? Uh, you could envision it as uh, capabilities. That is, uh, what are the local clusters of goods and services that must be available in, in order to enact any specific set of knowledge? For example, I could give you the plans for a 747 and all the instructions for how to make it, but if you went to Niger, you couldn't make it there because of a lack of complementary uh, 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 
of, of the ability to produce complementary goods and services for that production. And that's a, a literature that's associated with Ricardo Hausmann, Cesar Hidalgo, and others. Uh, a third strand uh, posits that total factor productivity is, uh, is management somehow, or the allocation of assets and uh, uh, productive capacity within firms, across firms, and across sectors. And this is associated with CA and Klinau and others. A fourth is that total factor productivity in, 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 uh, embodies differences in uh, institutions, uh, for example, the, uh, the ability to protect property rights. And a fifth uh, discusses total factor productivity as differences in uh, culture, for example, norms of uh, interpersonal trust. Now, there isn't time to get into detail about these, but I do want to point out that uh, it's very clear that several of these are not plausibly transmissible with migrants. No matter how many uh, migrants from Niger came to the United States, that would not plausibly decrease knowledge in the United States about how to make a 747. And it would not plausibly decrease the, the capabilities of uh, industrial clusters in the United States to provide the goods and services that are complementary to making a 747. Um, I, I would say the same for, uh, for uh, management techniques. Uh, institutions and culture, at least in, in principle, are uh, transmissible internationally. But here's where I want to talk about assimilation. If we're talking about institutions, an institution is an emergent phenomenon in a group of people. It is not something that can be embodied in a human. That is, the way that we put it in the paper is that an institution is not something an individual can have in the way that an individual has blonde hair, or has the flu, or has a university degree. The clearest way to see it is, is the institution of uh, what side of the road you drive on. Now, even if you are a native left-hand driver, and that's what you've been doing all your life, uh, the day you come to the United States, it's in your interest to drive on the right-hand side. Uh, if you don't uh, immediately uh, adapt, it doesn't matter to what extent the institution is embodied in you because you'll be dead. Uh, an institution is the, is the set of expectations and the set of expectations about people's expectations ad infinitum that exists within a group of people. And it, it's not something that is uh, simply and automatically transmissible by an individual uh, who arrives. Um, finally, congestion. Uh, th this is something we just don't know much uh, about. Uh, uh, it, it, is, it is certainly correct to say uh, uh, Economists know very little about the consequences of very, very high levels of immigration and very high immigration stocks, but there's not no information at all. Uh, you have Singapore with 40% uh, foreign-born, Vancouver, Canada with 40% foreign-born, Toronto, Canada with about half the population foreign-born, and those are not places that uh, are experience low levels or growth of total factor productivity. Um, it is nevertheless possible that uh, other places could be different or that at much higher levels and stocks of migration, things could be different. So uh, here's what we do in the paper uh, with the, just the few minutes that I have left. Um, put, put together a, a very simple uh, one-sector, two-factor Cobb-Douglas model and, uh, and ask uh, uh, for a given rate of, of transmission of, uh, of, uh, of total factor productivity from uh, low TFP countries to high TFP countries for a given rate of assimilation, for a given rate of uh, congestion, where congestion is a, a certain bending of the, of the, uh, of the transmission curve. Uh, do a few pages of integrals and see if you can come up with a simple expression for what the, the rate of migration would be that, again, just, uh, just offsets the simple uh, 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 global gain from spatially reallocating labor. 
that's the expression for it. Uh, it's it very intuitively, uh, it's, uh, it depends positively on assimilation. You could, you could have more mig- migration at, at higher rates of assimilation of productivity. It depends negatively on transmission tau. The more of uh, poor country TFP comes with migrants, uh, the lower the uh, dynamically uh, efficient rate would be. And it depends uh, negatively on, on congestion. That is, the more nonlinearities of things get, get uh, worse and worse as you have higher migrant stocks. Uh, the lower the dynamically efficient mi- migration rate would be. And we, we gathered the evidence we have on the parameters of this model. So just to give you a flavor for how we do it, um, for migrants in the US, there are nine very low TFP countries that have large enough samples of foreign-born in the census data to, uh, to establish a relationship between uh, the earnings of those people when they first arrive and compare it to, to uh, to uh, how those earnings evolve over time. This is what Ghanaians look like, Ghana-born people in the US census, where the the horizontal axis here is the years since immigration, and the uh, horizontal line is the the, uh, earnings of a US native uh, with the same uh, simple observable characteristics of age and education level and uh, gender. Uh, And the black line with the 95% confidence interval around it is the earnings of a Ghana-born person. So what what we do is is just give everything to the the epidemiological model and say uh, the the hit in earnings that you're seeing not long after or at at arrival and uh, and for for years after arrival is entirely uh, due to bringing low productivity with you. And uh, this dissipates at the rate that you see there. We, we estimate a half-life of that effect uh, uh, for people from Ghana. Here's what it looks like for Mexico, a lower hit up front, but also slower assimilation, both of which you would expect uh, uh, in the, uh, uh, knowing the differences between Ghana and Mexico. Uh, that's the flavor of where we're getting parameters for, for transmission and assimilation. For congestion, uh, are there nonlinearities at very high levels of, uh, of immigration? This is a graph that's similar to thank you. This is a graph that's similar to the one Giovanni Peri showed this morning, uh, when the, uh, I, I believe it was uh, uh, immigrant uh, uh, changes in the stock of of, uh, of uh, immigrants across uh, cities of the United States uh, on the x-axis was what he showed, and uh, changes in earnings on the y-axis. You saw a positive uh, relationship there. This is just the the a similar graph in levels across uh, census areas. So these are uh, public use micro data areas or PUMAs of the US census, uh, uh, 2,000 odd uh, divisions of the United States. The x-axis is fraction foreign born. So you can see there are a few of them with very, very high immigration uh, immigrant stocks, 60, 70, 80% of the population uh, immigrant. And the the y-axis is simply uh, uh, earnings of uh, average workers in those places. And uh, you do see, uh, with a, a simple uh, moving average there, that there is a little bit of a curve down at very high levels of immigration. And we don't try to explain that. It could be because there are other uh, uh, characteristics of the workers there, for example, that they have lower education. But we, we just uh, uh, give everything, again, to the epidemiological model and say, let's, let's set the congestion parameter below that, uh, that curve that you see across uh, areas of the United States. That is, assume a congestion parameter of 0.5. That blue line is what the relationship would look like if congestion were 0.5. That is, a, a, uh, uh, things get worse at a faster rate than you, than you see across areas of the United States. 
put those together, uh, and you get this graph, which will take a minute to explain. Uh, on, the, on the horizontal axis is uh, what you might assume about uh, an assimilation rate. On the vertical axis is what you might assume about the transmission rate. And those blue lines are uh, the, the relationships between assimilation and transmission that you would expect for a given level of, uh, of uh, dynamically efficient migration. All of this, at, uh, you can see in the upper right-hand corner, assuming that congestion, the congestion parameter is 0.5. Why do they, those blue lines slope up? Very intuitively, because if there's more transmission of bad stuff uh, from poor countries, you would need there to be faster and faster assimilation for a given uh, level of migration to be dynamically optimal. And the, the, that m equals 0 line is, is dynamically optimal zero migration. The, the dotted line next to it is the immigration we have right now, which is 0.3% uh, of the population per year. The line next to it is 1% of the population per year, then 3% of the population per year, and then unimaginably high rates of 5% of the population uh, per year. And the dots you see on here are the data for, uh, for transmission and assimilation for the nine very low TFP, uh, for people from the, very, uh, from the nine very low TFP countries that you saw in the census data. And you can see that uh, all nine of them are to the right of the 1% the line, and seven of them are to the right of the 3% line. That means that uh, uh, this, uh, if this, uh, this uh, epidemiological effect were to bite and actually be capable of erasing the, uh, the uh, economic gains to migration, it would happen at a level of migration that is uh, over an order of magnitude over the levels that, that we, uh, higher than the levels that we see right now. That doesn't mean that we recommend in any sense these levels of migration. Our, our question is just a descriptive one of if this is a real effect, give everything to it and ask when would, it, uh, when would we expect it to occur. We would expect it to occur at levels of migration so high that, current, that, that they're just uh, irrelevant to, uh, to discussions of, uh, of current uh, policy. Now, um, here's, uh, here, this discussion is very old. Here's a cartoon from 1903 that I like a lot. Uh, those, the, those guys on the left-hand side have bandanas that say ruffian and anarchist uh, on them. And uh, Uncle Sam is experiencing a danger to, uh, to American ideas and institutions. Uh, clearly, the new economic case uh, uh, for migration restriction is, uh, is not new. We also argued that it's not a case either. The, 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 the case has not been made, and the, the case awaits uh, uh, maybe uh, 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 data or, uh, or, or reasoning or evidence that could be brought uh, uh, to support it. There are economists right now uh, promising that uh, migration restrictions will uh, bring tremendous benefits, such as protecting the institutions on which our prosperity depends. But to, to quote an influential economist, beware of social engineers. Uh, their promises are often based on uh, flimsy modeling and inadequate evidence. Thank you. Okay, so I'm here to talk about a paper that I did with uh, Ben Alex and a few other people uh, that was published last year on uh, immigration and its possible effects on uh, economic freedom. Um, and I'm guessing that most of the people in this room are uh, relatively open to the idea that economic freedom is important for peace and prosperity. Um, and uh, what we do is we think of uh, economic freedom as, as an institution, probably the important 
uh, economic institution. Um, and we use data uh, from a data set that I use quite frequently, and many other people in academia use quite frequently, called e Economic Freedom of the World Report. Uh, I actually assist in putting it together, although I'm not, I'm not a co-author. Um, and just to, it's important to say what we're talking about when, when, we're, when I'm saying economic freedom. So uh, the report, it's an index uh, from zero to 10, uh, and it scores countries based on five areas of, of variables, uh, size of government, legal system, property rights, sound money, uh, freedom to trade internationally and regulation. And it's ultimately an empirical question of, of whether or not it's going to increase or decrease uh, economic freedom, whether it's going to hurt or help uh, institutions. Um, so first, just to give you more flavor of what's going on here and what we're talking about and what we're measuring. Um, first area is size of government, and it's just you know three, three measures of government spending and then two measures of uh, the top marginal tax rate combined into one. Uh, then the uh, then legal system and property rights, uh, which is a combination of expert judgments, uh, survey questions, and then the, like regularized uh, studies. For instance, one measures how difficult and how long it takes to enforce a contract. Uh, then the third area, sound money. It's obviously stuff like inflation, but then there's also, it also gives you information on uh, uh, regulations on whether or not you can own a foreign currency bank account. Uh, the last two areas, freedom to trade internationally, obviously stuff like tariffs, then other regulations that are related to it, like capital controls. And lastly, uh, regulation, which is a whole slew of different variables uh, that relate to uh, credit. We categorize them as uh, credit market uh, regulations, labor market regulations, and uh, business regulations. So there's a bunch of different arguments in the air that relate to uh, what Clemens was just talk, talking about. Um, so how might um, immigration affect economic freedom? American conservatives might say that, that immigrants will come to America and they will increase demand for certain public services, especially public health and public schools. Uh, and ultimately, that's going to increase the size of the welfare state. Increasing the size of the welfare state is going to increase the size of the government, and that's going to decrease our economic freedom. Now, what's interesting about this is that, the, is that European Social Democrats actually make precisely the opposite argument. Uh, which is that if you bring in immigrants, it's going to reduce social trust. And if you reduce social trust, you're going to reduce the willingness to, um, to pay for the welfare state. And then you're going to get a smaller welfare state, so they don't want that. And that is supported by, by some extent by the academic literature on fractionalization. Now, to become a bit more topical, what Amer American nationalists, that's what I'm going to call it, uh, make an entirely different argument, which is that immigrants will import their bad ideas and socialism, again, similar to uh, what Clemens was talking about. Um, and you can imagine there being similar equivalent arguments uh, in East Asia and Europe and so on uh, to, to this effect. Um, and, but, but then you can just make the pretty much the opposite argument, which is that uh, immigrants self-select and they come to the places that where, where they, they like the institutions and they want to be part of that. Uh, and that they will ultimately support the institutions uh, that, that they see the country representing, such as economic freedom in America. And... Uh, so we're all clearly on the same page because I believe this is the, the third time that uh, we've cited this at this conference that we've cited the this Journal of Economic Literature uh, um, article by uh, Borjas, um, and this is just slightly uh, distant from where uh, Clemens took his quotation. Uh, but this is just to establish that this American nationalist uh, um, argument is a thing, and it's not just a caricature or something. So to get into what we actually did, um, 
our core empirical strategy was to look at the levels of uh, immigrants uh, as a percentage of, of, a, of each country's population in the world in 1990 and uh, see how that relates to the level of economic freedom in 2011. Uh, those uh, years might sound a little bit haphazard, but really it's just what we had to choose based on data availability um, and, uh, and the fact that we wanted to give it enough time to you know, play out its effects on the political system if there are any effects. Um, and in all of our regression results, we're controlling for uh, economic freedom in uh, 1990, so basically you have a level of economic freedom, you have a level of immigrants. What do those two variables say about the future of economic freedom in the country in 2011? And then uh, as well, we start adding in control variables. We really only add two sets of controls. Uh, we control for, we first only control for GDP per capita in both 1990 and 2011 to capture the effects of, say, immigrants are attracted to um, uh, places that are wealthy. Um, or that they see that they expect a place to become wealthier, so that's, con that's now controlled for. Then we add another set of controls on top. We add another set of controls on top of, of uh, um, the GDP per capita uh, variable, which, so we use the Polity 4 index as a measure of democracy. And uh, so it goes from uh, autocratic to democratic. Um, and it just is another way of measuring the uh, institutional environment uh, in, in the country. So uh, we ultimately, so we have the, the simple uh, regression, then we have, we, we also control for GDP per capita and for both those years, and then we start controlling for the other institutions in those years. Um, then past that, we start looking at immigration as you could define it otherwise. Uh, so we're, we're first going to do the we're first going to just do the level, then we'll start thinking of it in other ways if, if the mechanism is different. So here's the, here's the basics. Um, so if, if you're just looking at, the, at uh, immigrants as a percentage of the population um, in 1990 and your control for uh, economic freedom in 1990, the uh, country uh, coefficient that we have there to the right, the 1.130, um, what that means is that a 1% increase uh, in the percentage of the population that's foreign born in 1990 corresponds to a 0 0.0113 uh, uh, units of economic freedom in 2011, which is positive, not negative. Um, the star next to it, I, I guess I'll explain, um, that, what that basically means is a borderline result, uh, and don't, you can't trust it completely. Uh, but uh, if you look down to the next line, when we start controlling for more things, we reach two stars, which is the conventional way of defining statistical significance in the academic literature. And you see not only that, but when you go down the line further, that the size of the coefficient, the size of the effect, continues to be positive um, and is larger and achieves greater levels of statistical significance. Um, now we can uh, split it up a little bit differently and say, okay, um, we have the level of, of immigrants, but maybe what we should care about is the, uh, the level of, of immigrants from rich countries versus uh, uh, countries that are poor that may not share the institutions or, or, um, or, or culture that, that rich countries already have. And what's, inter what's interesting is, is that if you look at the, these OECD countries, um, the, the effects we have are, are positive from immigrants from, from them, 
but they're not statistically significant and they dissipate when you uh, add the controls. Uh, but for non-OECD immigrants uh, coming to the country, that's where the statistical significance is coming from. And it's, and just as before, shows a previous pattern of uh, increasing size of the coefficient, more and more uh, statistical significance as you add more controls. Uh, now, what, what if what matters is, uh, isn't the level in 1990, but the rate at which they, which they arrive to the country as a percentage of their population? Uh, so we, can do, we did that too. The net inflow from 1990 to 2010, uh, its effect on economic freedom in 2011, and you once again get the same pattern. It's maybe a bit smaller, uh, but you get positive effects that are increasing, and the statistical significance increases as, as you go. It's the same exact pattern. Now what happens if you think, okay, I think that both the level and the, and the, and the, and the inflow matter? You put them both in there at the same time, you still have positive effects, but you lose statistical significance. It's because these two things are related, and when you put two things that are related in a regression that doesn't have a, lot, a ton of observations, and it begin, becomes difficult to distinguish between them. All right, and this is going to be the last table. So we have, the, just as before, the, the level and the uh, inflow. But what if there's also a, a, uh, an interaction between them? So by that, uh, I mean like, okay, so maybe it's all right to have uh, a lot of immigrants, and maybe it's okay to have a significant inflow, but maybe something else happens uh, when, um, when you have a lot of both. And lo and behold, we actually have a negative sign. Um, and so... At, that's at the very last regression there when you have all the controls put in. You have uh, positive effects from the, the foreign-born population and the inflow, uh, but then you have the negative sign on the interaction term. But there are caveats to attach to this. Uh, the, those first two columns are, um, are less than one, and to get the interaction, you multiply them by each other. So the, that last column, the, the, the data itself, is a, is a, it's a very small number. Uh, and when you start inputting numbers into, into fitting data and into, into this of what it would be, uh, what you don't really get is negative signs way out uh, when you have a, a lot of, of both. You have diminishing returns. And I think that's the correct interpretation. This is of perhaps there's diminishing returns of, uh, of immigrants to economic freedom. And so just to summarize and, and, and uh, state clearly what this means, um, further analysis shows, so we went back, we took the same types of regressions I just showed you, but we replaced overall economic freedom with um, the different areas of economic freedom that I was telling you before, the property rights, the legal system, uh, and so on. Uh, <clears throat> and, the, and the results that we found that were statistically significant were that a uh, net immigrant inf inflow in two, uh, from 1990 to 2010 was related to, sm to a smaller government in 2011 which also reflects uh, the, uh, the social democratic argument that, that I mentioned before, that uh, increasing, the, the, um, uh, increasing the number of immigrants will actually reduce, reduce the size of uh, the, the welfare state because of reducing social trust. Fortunately, we, we don't see other negative impacts in economic freedom of, from social trust, which are also possible. But in any case, uh, looking at the, at the large populations, the levels in 1990, uh, that seems to actually relate to better property rights enforcement and legal, and legal systems uh, in, uh, in 2011 and possibly uh, uh, fewer regulations, although that result is a bit more flimsy. 
so that, that's, that's the bulk of the paper, but I just want to make one more point that I've noticed since uh, this paper was, was done with. Um, and that's, and that's a, I came across this data from Pew. Uh, and this is data on support for the free market system. Uh, and there's various uh, um, advanced countries, then developing countries. And among the uh, advanced countries, the United States there, 70% say we agree with free markets. And 20, only 25% say we disagree with free markets, which is good, I guess. Um, that's a net 45%. Um, but if you look over to the, those emerging markets, um, and I want to draw your attention specifically to China and India, both of those are net 58%, which seems to su suggest that, that their ideology um, is better than what we have here. And another reason why that's interesting is because if we're looking at the, the current trends of immigration and where it looks like it's probably heading is that I, uh, I guess uh, China and India may, may be among the biggest uh, um, immigrant, immigrants from uh, country origin or uh, from among any country in the, in the world going forward. Um, and so that should also inform what we're, what we're thinking about. So to conclude, I, we used you know, conventional uh, econometric measures, nothing really that fancy, just what does the data say when you look at it? And we can't really find evidence that, that uh, immigration hurts uh, a country's institutions as measured by economic freedom. Uh, and in fact, in many specifications, we find evidence that it, uh, they seem to help them. This grants credence to, to the views I put forth earlier, uh, the, the possible theories of how it might be positive. Um, and obviously, more social science can be done. We can throw in all sorts of control variables we want, we can dream up with. We can come up with, with, with higher tech empirical methodologies to try to, to, to look at the question another way. But the, but the fact is, is, is that the, the immigrant skeptics haven't really done this themselves credibly in any way. And that's where, that's where we are at this point. So the ball is in their court. Well, I think uh, Alex has done a great job putting on this conference today uh, with, uh, with one caveat of a mistake that he obviously made, is that he made me the last speaker between all of us leaving this room and going to a beer and wine reception, and he knows how much I like beer and wine. Uh, so it's with the great temptation that I would just thank you now and conclude. Uh, but for I just finished this paper literally on Monday, uh, so I'm very interested to actually present it and get some feedback on it. It also increases the chances that I could say something incredibly stupid since I haven't had much time to get feedback on it this week. Uh, however, it means that comments and suggestions that come in will actually be useful and go into revising the paper before it gets submitted somewhere too. In fact, I've already written three things down during Michael's talk that I want to add to it. So. <clears throat> um, where this paper actually comes from is contributing to this, and I put new in quotation debate about uh, immigration's impact on institutions. And it came after I wrote the paper with, with Ryan, Alex, and our other co-authors that Ryan just presented, because uh, I sent that to George Borjas, and he sent me a polite email back and said, uh, well, that's an interesting study, I'm paraphrasing here, but your paper has all of the cost and all of the benefits of a traditional cross-country growth regression, and I'm not sure how much 
extrapolating from today's stocks and flows of immigrants that come under a managed system, that that tells us about what it would be like in a world with open borders, which is fair enough. It certainly does. But if we're starting from a spot where in the literature he says, what do we actually know about immigrants' impact on institutions? Little, read, nothing. Well, if we're starting from knowing nothing, knowing the initial slope of the line is something that you can start to use to extrapolate about bigger flows. But fair enough on the point. But his next sentence was, what I'd like to see is a natural experiment with a large exogenous shock caused by an inflow of immigrants and what that does to a host country's institutions. And as I was reading the email, I knew which paper I was writing next immediately because I said, well, that's Israel in the 1990s with the fall of the Soviet Union. There's a massive inflow of immigration there. Let's take a look at what happened to the institutions in that decade. Uh, so the paper is largely written up as a response or as a, a continued response along with Michael and the paper Ryan presented and others to Borjars and Collier's latest claims on this. But I do think this is more than just responding to a, a, an assertion essentially made by them in the literature that immigrants could have this big effect. Uh, because it's also a common fear. I mean, for over a decade now, I've given public talks on immigration. And I think the most uh, important objection that classical liberals and sometimes conservatives have is that immigrants might come here and destroy our institutions. They're going to in bring in some bad ideas that undermine American values and determine our political system, our economic freedom, security, property rights will decline, and that'll make us worse off. This, while it's an assertion that's been made in the literature, it's also a common fear among many knowledgeable and otherwise sympathetic people, uh, including, and maybe I'll be the first person today, I don't know if somebody got it in earlier to get Hayek or Mises up on slides here uh, at a migration conference, but Hayek had reservations about it. And, and this quote here, what he's saying, while I look forward to as an ultimate ideal, to the state of affairs in which national boundaries have ceased to be obstacles to the free movement of them. I believe within any period within which we can now be concerned, any attempt to realize it would lead to the revival of strong nationalist sentiments and a retreat from the positions already uh, achieved. Basically, that there'd be a native blowback here of nationalism if you brought more immigrants in, and it might result in more status policies. Uh, Mises also similarly says the liberal demands that every person have the right to live wherever he wants. This is not a negative demand. It belongs to the very essence of a society based on private ownership of the means of production, that every man may work and dispose of his earnings where he thinks best. Again, ultimate ideal should be free immigration. But then what he worries about is that the immigrants, if we don't have a free society that they come to, if we have some sort of mixed society like we have here, that they might use the machinery of the state to turn it against the native population and make you less free. So he makes the claim that only after you adopt a, a liberal system do all of the the problems of immigration go away. So while the papers being presented here are in response to this, this new literature, which really is quite new, and Michael's certainly right, if it's uh, 98 or 99% of all papers on, on immigration are not looking at the long-run growth effects or specifically the, the institutional parts of it, but this is a common and I think important fear uh, that needs to be talked about here. Uh, I won't read through the quotes. I think they've framed Borjars enough for me from the previous two talks. But it is worth pointing out that the Collier in his book is just making, uh, uh, kind of pointing out anecdotes and little stories, but offering no systematic evidence that any sort of negative institutional effect occurs. And Borjas' simulations are exactly that. They're simulations. He said they might bring some of their bad human capital that impacts uh, our measure of productivity in the United States. We know little, read nothing about it, but now I'm going to run six simulations, no, all in the same direction, which seems odd if you know little, read nothing about it, uh, but all in the same direction and then say, well, this could erase the trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. 
So I view this paper, this uh, case study that I'm doing, it's not like a definitive because a particular case study of Israel says one thing, then QED, we don't have to worry about this objection. It's more just a piece of the puzzle of starting to try to gather some empirical evidence for things that are empirical claims that people are making, but without any evidence. So I appreciate the, I view the paper Ryan presented, this one, the one of Michael's, as all as compliments, trying to get us kind of an idea of different ways we measure this, different methodologies. So Ryan did a cross-country empirical analysis. Now this is gonna be an N equals one case study. And if these things all together start pointing in the same direction, that tells you we should be severely discounting the assertions that some people are making without any evidence at all. And I think Michael's actually very charitable in his paper. Uh, to them, despite, uh, despite the quote about some guy about trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk. Uh, because the measure that he, he, that he uses in there of assimilation and, and transmission is really giving like the absolute best case for them. After we admit that it's the, he goes through the kind of the five different channels that you might find in the institution, that it comes down to culture and institutions of where they could actually spill it over onto us. But the measure he's using right of, of the wage uh, assimilation. Immigrants, Necessar let's just do a thought experiment. Just one immigrant comes. One immigrant comes, he's going to be less earning than the American. Over time, he will assimilate his earnings. But that says, that's not measuring the spillover to culture and institutions at all. That says like private good human capital. These other things might actually have no negative externality at all. Even if their wages are below what American wages are when they first get here and take some time to assimilate. In fact, if they have good institutional spillovers, as, as Ryan's kind of pointing to, in terms of their ideology or how it impacts institutions, then there's no actually negative time lag or assimilation problem at all. And in fact, Michael's other paper, the trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk, should have like a, a parenthesis after it, trillion dollar bills, parentheses, and more, because there's actually a favorable productivity impacts of the immigrants coming in. So with that in mind, I'll briefly go through the Israel as a, a, a natural experiment here. So what happened is, uh, just before the fall of the Soviet Union, they released, the uh, Soviets released their emigration restrictions so that people could leave. Then at the subsequent collapse of the country, people were free to go. And why it creates a nat natural experiment is because Israel has the law of return. So the law of return is a complete open borders policy to worldwide Jews. And in fact, it's a particularly strong version of an open borders policy when it comes to the ability to test a country's institutions because not only is it open borders that you can come in, but as soon as you land, you have instant citizenship, full voting rights, full access to the welfare state. Uh, and in response to the relaxation of the emigration restrictions from the Soviet Union, you had about 20% surge in the population of Israel during the decade of the 1990s caused by Soviet immigration. And you can see, uh, caused by migration of Jews from former Soviet Union countries. And you can see at the beginning of this period, the masses, these here are the annual uh, flows of migrants coming in, the orange line being from the former Soviet Union countries. You can see, I think 4% in one year came in there, but it compounds over the decade as all these other flows and amounts to 20% change in the population in a 10-year period and a 20% change in your voting population. That's a big shock. And it satisfies Borjas' criteria of being a natural experiment because Israel did not change its immigration policy during this. They always had this policy. It wasn't like they had more favorable situation come about and then change their policy. It's the Soviets changed the policy, so you got the inflow, which makes it the, experiment, the natural experiment. So how good is Israel as a case study? And I also thought this would be fun to put Stalin up here on a Cato PowerPoint. Uh, just wanted to see if like the machines would break or something. Uh, but I guess I softened him up with Mises and Hayek first. Uh, so how good is it as a case study? So I want to uh, 
go into a couple points in favor and, and, and against. So one, this is migrants coming from the former Soviet Union. So they have a 70-year history of lack of political freedoms and lack of economic freedoms, and a lot of anti-capitalist propaganda. This would seem like people coming from a low either total factor productivity country or lower total factor productivity country, uh, and one with an ideology, a history of ideology against Western values of, of political and economic freedom. And because they have instant legal ability through the voting mechanism to impact institutions, these are things that would make this seemingly a fairly good case study for the types of claims made by Borjas and Collier. Um, there's an obvious objection to that. It's Israel. That's different. And it might be open borders, but it's open borders to worldwide Jews. So they're going to come in and be religiously, culturally homogeneous to the population. So we shouldn't expect the type of problems we would have in other migrations. I think it's a fair enough uh, objection, but when we actually look at the immigrants and their values, it doesn't hold up. So the law of return isn't just for religious Jews. It's for Jews, non-Jew spouses of Jews, non-Jewish children and grandchildren of Jews, and their non-Jewish spouses. So when you actually look at the Jews from the former Soviet Union who came to Israel, it wasn't part of a Zionist project. They were mostly non-religious people. 74% were, uh, when surveyed after arriving identified as secular, about 25% as traditional, only 1.4% is super religious. 49% uh, of them didn't even want to go to Israel. They just went there because it was the only place that they could go to easily and that would accept them. Uh, only 14.2% of Soviet Jews uh, claimed a Jewish language as their first language only another 5% as their second language. 97% of them, though, spoke fluent Russian. So again, it's not uh, linguistically homogeneous moving in either. And actually, what you see is a widespread uh, Russian media uh, uh, rise up in Israel during the 1990s in response to demands from the migrants. 88% uh, of them, when they were surveyed, thought it was important for their ch children to learn Russian culture, 90.6% of them to learn the Russian language. Uh, and the sociologists who've looked at them many report that many of them are nostalgic for Russian culture, and they feel a superiority of their culture over the Israeli one. Uh, so this, to me, is building. Yes, there is something unique about it, but these aren't all religiously, linguistically, ethnically homogeneous with the population that they're going into. Uh, despite the fact, by the way, the Israeli population, at least the uh, most of the ruling part of the Israeli population was very pro-migration. Uh, they wanted this wave of migrants to come in to help balance uh, more Jewish people, and particularly Ashkenazi Jew Jewish people from European descent uh, with Middle Eastern Jews and uh, Arab population in the country. Uh, but we find with these immigrants, the main motives for coming is not to be part of Israel's project, but the normal push motives of going for a better economic opportunity for themselves and their children. Uh, there is one unique aspect of it that makes it a little different than mass migrations uh, from the third world, and that's that many of the immigrants who came had high human capital skills, uh, private good human capital, uh, being professionally trained, although often they couldn't use that professional training in the same profession in Israel, but uh, looking at occupations and how they worked, uh, it wouldn't be uh, wrong to characterize many of them as similar to the Ashkenazi middle class. So institutional determination then. What we start with is a point of power balance between the, the left-leaning Labor Party and the right-leaning Lukid Party. Uh, they had formed a coalition government in 1984. That coalition had broke down. They had about equal balance of power when this migration wave starts happening. Uh, the 1992 election, when we observe how they reacted to the Russian immigrants, Lukid's propaganda was the Labor's all a bunch of communists. They're a bunch of socialists. Don't vote for them. You're going to get your lousy Soviet Union back. And the Labor's response, 
was they actually changed colors in their party. They stopped using red as, as part of their materials uh, in an effort to try to court the Soviet vote. So the people, uh, the politicians there, as they're responding to the immigrants, are clearly signaling that they don't think that these immigrants are bringing their, quote, commie human capital that are going to pollute the institutions. Uh, they end up voting majority for the labor candidate, but the evidence from the sociologists on this is that it's mostly, though, not about ideologically favoring labor over the right party, but it's more about the right party was in power before and they didn't feel the transition of the immigration and assimilation was going well, so they wanted to punish the prime minister who was in power. Uh, and what you see then with them is actually a continuation of, at least with the prime minister throughout the decade, of flipping against whoever is in power because they're dissatisfied with them. Um, but And that the people who are commenting on this are clearly noting that flips in the Russian vote are enough to flip the election. Uh, they also established their own political parties, first in the 92 race, although none of them receive enough votes to get into the, uh, the parliament. It's a proportional representation system where you vote for your, your party lists. Uh, new parties were formed in the 1996 election. One of those news parties, Israel and Aliyah, won seven seats uh, out of the 120 and became actually part of the ruling coalition government uh, with the Lukid party and helped determine policy for the remainder of the decade. 1999 election at the end of the de decade, two Russian parties won 10 seats in the parliament. So what we see here is that they became politically active and uh, both informing their own parties and the other parties responding to them by trying to court their vote. Uh, some assessments of this, in general, the new immigrants tended to back the right-wing parties, and as the 90s progressed, their voting power was palpable. Uh, and then both the right-wing and left-wing Zionist camps have become highly dependent on the immigrants, which has allowed them to up their anti in the political bargaining to easily shift allegiance from one camp to another. And I should say, when it comes to economic policies, even the left-leaning Labor Party had become pro-privatization and pro-market much more so than they ever had been in their history by 1990. There was largely consensus between both parties that they needed to become more market-orientated in Israel. It, there wouldn't be this type of consensus between the two parties if this 20% of the Russian, if this 20% of the, the electorate is Russian and bringing Tommy human capital. When you have such close competition between the two groups, this would have been the time to defect if you wanted to do that. Uh, the very fact that Labor didn't tells you that these Russians weren't demanding bad institutions from their, their home countries. So what's the empirical result here? So political institutions, this is using Freedom's House measure, they score a one in the, uh, they have one as the top of their scale as opposite the economic freedom one. So uh, Israel had strong democratic institutions before the migration. After the migration, they still maintain the strong democratic institutions. Economic ones, what we see is a transformation of eco in economic freedom in Israel over the course of this decade. It improved by 45% over the decade. 45% is a big change. That's going from 15% below the global average to 12% above the global average. It's going from 92 to 45 in the index. This is a substantial improvement. And that, that, that jump in the index rankings at a time when the rest of the world is also becoming more economically free. We can break it down to the individual areas. Uh, four out of the five individual areas improved economic freedom and significantly over the course of the decade. The one exception is size of government. That one declined during the decade which could be expended when you look at the components of it, it's transfers and subsidies that went up. Uh, but that should be expected. If you have a large migration, that's 20% of your population and comes with immediate access to the welfare state. And Israeli culture with the idea of that we're responsible for taking on and initially taking care of these immigrants, you don't get the type of native blowback uh, reaction that's common in the literature and the, the, the European Social Democrat sense. Um, 
But what we find then is by 2005, it had recovered to about 97% of the level that it had been before. So it initially took a hit, absorbed the immigrants, then size of government returned to like it was before. The other ones, what you see is substantial improvement in property rights or people's visions of how secure they are in their property rights. Um, this speaks a little bit to the, because the way that property rights measure is uh, constructed, it's a lot of surveys of people of how secure they feel about their contracts, how impartial they believe courts are, things like that. Uh, it also speaks a little bit to the cultural part of this of trust and the social trust breaking down. If it was, you wouldn't see property rights scores increasing over the decade. Although one of my ideas for this paper now is to actually just go and get the, the trust data for this and add it into the case study too to talk about culture as well as institutions. Uh, sound money. Israel had a history of high inflation. They got it under control during the course of this decade. So at a minimum, they didn't resort to the printing press in order to offset demands on the welfare state of the new arrivals. Freedom to trade goes up 25% over the decade. Freedom from regulation increases 40% over the decade. What we're seeing here is uh, this is a large influx of immigration and pretty much across the board economic, except for the one area where you might necessarily have a negative impact, the institutions, they're not deteriorating all our Borjars and Collier. They're actually improving and getting better. So punchline on this, I think Israel's a, a reasonable case study. Um, there's nothing specifically Jewish or Zionist about this migration that makes it unique so it can't speak anything to the rest of the world. I think we have to have all of the usual cautions that you do with any case study. Uh, the fact that Israel had a big immigration and improved its institution certainly doesn't equal QED. Uh, a bunch of Nigerians moving to the United States would have a similarly good impact. Uh, but when we're starting with the literature that has no evidence for the claim, that has no evidence for the claim, and we start by saying, if we grant the heroic assumption that some of their private human capital is also going to be the public good human capital they assimilate, well, then still they don't have a case for restriction. And we say, if we look at existing trends of stocks and flows across 110 countries, and we don't not only find no deterioration, we find an improvement in most of the 32 regressions that were in that paper. Okay, well, here's another alternative methodology, a case study that's a natural experiment where there was a large and exogenous shock with people with communist history human capital. And again, there's an improvement. When you start taking these pieces together and balance that against no evidence for a claim, what I think it does is it should make uh, a skeptical that until any evidence is brought to bear that immigrants do, in fact, have negative institutional impact on destination countries, that we should be more pro-immigration than uh, classical liberals and people who otherwise embrace freedom in markets need to embrace greater freedom of immigration. Uh, one, because freedom is a value in and of itself. And two, it's probably the greatest thing that we could do for poorer people around the world in terms of enhancing their economic welfare, and for that matter, increasing global incomes. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, all of you. Uh, we're going to open it up now for people, uh, the panelists, to ask some questions of uh, each other, if they have any such questions, uh, on the research that has been presented. So uh, Michael, you had a question that you wanted to ask. Yes. So these were fascinating. Uh, just on the no evidence point, I, I, I can't uh, hold back from saying, you know, uh, Jeffrey Williamson, Tim Hatton, other economic historians have studied uh, uh, historical migration. And at the time that my uh, German ancestors came in the 1840s, uh, the, uh, low-skill uh, male wages uh, in Germany were about a third of what they were here, uh, uh, maybe a fourth. 
and uh, there were places in the United States where lots and lots of them <laughs> congregated, uh, including Dayton, Ohio, which is where mine ended up. And there's just no sign at all that they brought their low productivity, or as Collier puts it, their quote, dysfunctional social model, unquote, uh, with them uh, to reduce. Uh, so so I, I, uh, uh, in our paper, we mentioned the no evidence point and and uh, and push back on it, uh, uh, not to detract at all from the from the evidence that you are providing. Uh, uh, there 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 isn't none, uh, but we need a lot more, and this is this is excellent. The question uh, is that comes to my mind is is whether we could expect different effects on institutions and particularly on economic freedom from uh, uh, more diverse versus less diverse immigration. So what I have in mind is uh, Jefferson, in talking about the, the success of the Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, argued that it, the, uh, it, it was uh, when you had lots and lots of little religious groups, collectively they were in favor of religious freedom because they were uh, concerned about domination by larger groups. And you might not expect that dynamic if it were just one big group versus another big group and trying to dominate each other. And, and also the empirical evidence, uh, Alberto Alessina of Harvard and, and co-authors have a paper uh, uh, in which they measure the association between the birthplace diversity of immigrants in a country and find that countries with a greater diversity of birthplaces among their immigrant stock uh, are richer. Uh, and uh, I, I, I've often wondered well, what, what exactly could be the mechanisms uh, uh, the, the, uh, for such an effect. And, uh, and I, I wonder, do we have any evidence or, or do you have a theory about what the, whether the effects of immigration just from Honduras <laughs> might have on, uh, on economic freedom in the U.S. versus immigration you know, from, from, uh, from uh, uh, 50 different countries? Yeah, so I'm not willing to make the claim that there won't be any cases where a mass migration from one group to another couldn't be detrimental. Clearly, using Israel as a case study, there are some countries nearby that if they allowed open borders from would be very detrimental <laughs> to their institutions. Uh, so there isn't a, a universal claim like this at, at, at all. Uh, but in general, I, I, I am fairly sympathetic to the notion that the more diverse immigrant stock would be better. Uh, there's parts of the literature out there, of course, that look like of kind of nativist blowback that Ryan mentioned of uh, wanting to shrink the welfare state, which I would say is an improvement in institutions. Uh, but the people who usually say bad things about the heterogeneity are bringing from the fractionalization literature. But I don't know how well the empirics of the fractionalization literature speak to immigration because almost all of the data is from sub-Saharan African countries that have kind of artificial boundaries uh, or from like American cities where the diversity uh, wasn't the result initially of voluntary migration, but of actual slave migration. So I don't think the evidence that the people who are usually skeptical about the heterogeneity, I just don't think it speaks to the immigration very well. Um, and I do think, by the way, in terms of policy implications, of thinking about the exceptions to the rule. So if more open borders generates a lot more wealth, uh, but there are exceptions to the rule where in the Israeli case, a massive Palestinian immigration would have an effect. If individual countries each put up their own barrier to whatever their exceptions to the rule are, as long as not every country's exceptions are the same, we could still get most of those trillion dollar bills off the sidewalk uh, because the migrants would just shift where they're going to from one, lower pro uh, from one higher pro productivity place to another. So I think there's room within a fairly pretty much open border stance to allow for exclusions of individual countries where it could be unique. Uh, uh, Ryan, uh, to ask a question about uh, the paper that we all wrote together about this, we also took a look at uh, American states 
and the impact. I was wondering if you could uh, describe just for a second. That was a long time ago, Alex. Okay, yeah. So um, if I if I recall, so um, just to to set it up, I guess for like a brief a brief question. Sorry to put you on the spot like that, but as a brief question, it was a little bit more negative than it was across countries. So the impact of immigrant stocks in the past on economic freedom scores for individual states uh, was a little bit um, more negative than the results uh, internationally. And uh, uh, Ben here talked a little bit about uh, blowback and some of these uh, examples. Do you think sort of maybe some of these big statewide anti-immigration movements like in Arizona in 2010 or maybe California in 1994 or Georgia, South Carolina more recently, ostensibly led by the party that claims to be uh, pro-free market, the uh, Republican Party, do you think that that could be uh, potentially an explanation uh, for some of those movements? Or um, partly one of the reasons mm -hmm. why we don't see this internationally is that most countries deal with these flows pretty well and there isn't a lot of blowback and why that might be? Well, I, I, I would caution quite a bit about using the, the state data just because the economic freedom of the world data that we have is so much higher quality. Um, but I, th the only other thing I really have to say is that I think it's incredibly ironic about those who are saying that, that they are anxious to uh, protect American institutions are, you know, at the forefront of seeming to actively destroy the, the, the aspects of, of rule of law that, um, that I think are, you know, most important for economic freedom. And I think it's important also on this panel, when we talk about economic freedom, we are not talking about the ability of labor to move across borders, which is also in and of itself an important component of this. So we were just talking about a lot of uh, the other uh, aspects of uh, economic freedom. So uh, at this stage, unless anybody has a question up here for anybody else, um, I was going to uh, open it up to the audience for uh, some questions. So uh, a few notes, please wait to be called on. Uh, please identify yourself, uh, the organization uh, you are with, and uh, wait for the microphone, and uh, please ask a question, too. So uh, I'll start in the back right there. Uh, hi, Shikha um, Dalmia, Reason Foundation. Uh, the question I had was, you know, you hear a lot about the institutional impact of open borders and migration uh, on economic freedom and other kinds of freedom and what have you. But if we are going to compare uh, policies and apples to apples, then we also have to consider the institutional impact of restrictionism. Uh, what does that itself do to institutions of freedom? So my question is, I mean, uh, the U.S. went through a quasi-period of restrictionism from the 1930s to the 1960s, and other countries have had their own policies of restrictionism. Is there any, has anybody done this, and, or is there any way to isolate the impact of restrictionism on institutions, especially institutions of freedom? Um, I believe that there's a uh, paper that's either just published or forthcoming uh, by Josh, Joshua Hall on actually re ability of uh, migrant, uh, migrants to emigrate to other uh, countries. And when there's uh, a greater ability of these migrants to move out, it kind of tames the government and seems to improve the institutional qual quality, I believe, as measured by economic freedom of the world. Yeah, I think it's called like Exeter Voice or something like that. Uh, but in terms of the, uh, and that's the ability to emigrate, 
I don't know of any on the restrictions. Uh, casual empiricism in the United States, looking at that time period as a time of a move towards socialism. Uh, but uh, that's not worked out at all. Uh, and actually, for using like the data on economic freedom as an institutional thing, uh, right now you can only go back to 1970. Ryan's working on bringing it back to the middle of the century right now. And, and also, just uh, restrictions writ small. Uh, visas are already in the uh, index. So the difficulty of or uh, how many co countries uh, any given country will allow to come without getting a visa ahead of time. So th this is already thought of to a certain extent in, in terms of economic freedom as much as we can get into the index. Yeah, and I uh, just very briefly, I wrote a uh, blog sort of confirming what Ben said about just the casual uh, empirics, but that period of time from about 1930 to about 1970 when immigration was heavily restricted in the United States, you saw an increase in government expenditures uh, per capita of 17-fold in uh, real terms. Uh, meanwhile, in the 40-year period prior to that when immigration was open, and the 40-year period after that when immigration has been more open, in each period you saw a uh, doubling in real terms per capita. So while itself, you know, I can't make a causal claim there, I think at, at the most with that I could say it seems like when governments restrict immigration, they also uh, roll back a lot of other uh, types of uh, at least economic freedoms. Uh, in this sphere, at least in, in the United States, in that one small case study. Uh, next question. Um, I'll, this, this gentleman right here. Uh, wait one second for the microphone, sir. This is more in the way of a, uh, a comment than a direct question. Uh, it, it seems to me that the uh, hypothesis or the fear of uh, undermining uh, traditional cultural values and institutions goes against uh, common logic because the people that you're talking about are the discontented and the disenfranchised who want to leave the country, who are dissatisfied with their own country. The idea that the Russian Jews would want to establish a Soviet Union in Israel is not exactly the reason that they left Russia in the first place. However much their cultural sympathies for the homeland may exist and uh, this, in a way, has been the, uh, uh, the glory of this country, the, the freedom that you say. As a matter of fact, uh, Neil Ferguson has a whole book about how empires flourish and, uh, and decline. Anyway, uh, I, it's nice to hear the empirical evidence <laughs> as much as we can get it. Thanks. Can, can, can I just address that? I, I thought that was a very uh, insightful point, and, and I, it, 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 it touches on a... a a hobby horse I have in, in discussions of this kind. People often use the word import and export with regard to migrants, you know, in, in the, in the uh, are we going to import Mexicans or, uh, uh, you know, are they sending us their best, that sort of thing. And it, it's, it, this isn't just a, a, an attitude, uh, it, that's just factually wrong. There, there's, there, there's, uh, there was a time when the United States actually imported labor uh, by force, uh, 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 people in bondage were brought that way. That's not what migration is right now. It's people choosing to move. And the policy decision is either you obstruct that or you don't. There's no uh, uh, subsidy for immigration right now. There's no forcible immigration. There's no uh, importation of people. And for that reason, when people get concerned about, well, if we import people from Honduras, are we going to import their institutions as well? That's not 
anything like what's going on. What's going on is that some Hondurans are choosing to move, and the policy decision is, do we obstruct them or not? And as you're pointing out, the, the Hondurans who choose to move are typically very, very different from the, the ones who don't. And that's true across the board. The Vietnamese people who are here are not typical Vietnamese. The Nepalese who are here are not typical Nepalese. And a, a sensible discussion of policy has to start from that point. Yes, thank you. Uh, right here in the second row. Thank you, Carmel Chiswick from George Washington University. Uh, I won't repeat the previous comment because that was going to be my lead in. Uh, there really is a difference between the question as to whether they bring in their institutions and the question as to whether they increase economic freedom. The Israel example, it seemed to me, illustrated that. The Russians who came to Israel were anti-communist, and they brought in notions of free market. And if anything, your evidence suggests that they undermine the traditional socialist institutions that may have been on the decline to begin with, but it doesn't matter. It's not evidence that they did not bring in their institutions. Uh, the same thing can be said about the, at the turn of the 20th century, the immigrants from low TFP uh, Sicily or Jews from Russia. Uh, they brought values that were positive in terms of the free market, but the question is, did they change the political uh, uh, outcomes in the United States. So those are two completely different questions. Yeah, well appreciated. Uh, maybe we could have been clearer on that. My response to the Borjars is not that immigrants don't impact institutions. It's to the extent they do, it's in a good way, and <laughs> that increases our productivity. Yes? Well, I would say not only do I think it's good because I value freedom, but if we're talking about does it impact the trillion dollar bills on the sidewalk? Our measure of institutions is one that's associated with increases in economic growth, and so then anyone who's doing a utilitarian thing would also say good. Yes, thank you, wonderful comment. Uh, right down here in the uh, second row. Uh, So this was a very interesting session, very uh, lively. So a step further. So I uh, agree 100% with all you said. <clears throat> but uh, I have a worry here. And the worry is the following, that uh, uh, it is possible that in, an indirect effect of immigration is that of strengthening some of the nativist, in a sense. So the UK has voted to get out of the EU. That's a bad policy decision. That's probably is not going to improve their institution. And they made a point of connecting this directly to the fact that they're getting too many um, immigrants. So here, the point is the following policy question, which is a serious one. Given that, given that uh, sort of overwhelming evidence says that the effect of the immigrants are positive, but the perception of a significant group of non-immigrants is that of responding to this by closing, by making some potentially political and institutional decision which could be harmful in the wrong way. Uh, what should we look at uh, in terms of how can we manage to have the benefits of the immigration without the without the nativist response, which 
could, I think, be harmful to our institution. Again, I'm turning this on your head. It's not the immigrants who are making these uh, consequences, but it's the response and sometimes uh, the ill-informed response that could create this. And I think this could be a little bit of a real issue. Right. I, I think that's a, a great question, and it's essentially the Hayek quote that I started with there, too, because it was the nativist blowback that he was talking about. Uh, I think the the vote uh, or uh, the verdict is far from out on whether Brexit will be a net improvement in, in freedom for Britain or not. Uh, I think it quite pro possibly could be. Um, but I do think when we look at Europe in particular, the kind of nativist and hard right blowback in light of the refugees is, is cause for concern. Although I careful not to extrapolate too much from some of these things in, in Europe of the social dynamic, because I think a large part of Europe's problems with migrants in terms of blowback comes from their own lousy labor market regulations. Things that have high minimum wages relative to productivity, laws that make it impossible to dismiss workers. These are things that price immigrants out of the labor market, so then they arrive, but they can't integrate into the labor market. How do you deal with that? Well, you enclave and you resent the society that's hosting you. How do natives re uh, react to that? They resent the people who are leeching off them and not integrating into society, and you get this kind of vicious spiral uh, that I, I think of as largely a product of the lack of economic freedom in, in labor markets and, and a lot of European labor markets. But it's, it's a concern I recognize. And uh, in, in the paper, although it wasn't on the, uh, didn't put it on screen, uh, I couldn't, or we couldn't find any relationship at all between uh, more immigrants and uh, worse scores in freedom to trade internationally. And in that, uh, um, Area that that su that subcategory contains a whole lot of variables that that really capture a lot of what people are being concerned right now about Brexit. Can I just also? Uh, uh, I thought this was a fascinating point. I wanted to mention two things. One is is that uh, remarkably, Henry George, uh, uh, at the time uh, that Chinese exclusion was proceeding. Uh, spelled out another argument for it, and it was precisely that the presence of the Chinese in California was leading to the support of demagogic uh, politicians. Uh, the, uh, in other words, he was, he, was, he was making precisely this case. On the evidence, uh, uh, certainly in the case of Brexit, it was, it was people who, it was areas where there was not a lot of social and workplace exposure to immigrants that were voting to exclude the most. And at the, there could be evidence that I'm not aware of uh, that uh, that the that the presence of, of immigrants is is causally associated with closure to to trade, closure to to immigration at the at the national level. But certainly, I I think there is good support for what sociologists call contact theory that that at the local level. Uh, economic and other interactions with immigrants uh, lead to the opposite of support for closures uh, of policy. To local areas. Okay. For Switzerland and the U.S., it goes the other way, but I don't know that literature well. I, I, I certainly, I don't think we have definitive evidence that, that that more and more immigration, even at the local level, increases support for for demagogues as uh, as was feared in the 1880s.
And uh, yeah, just to catapult off of that point, uh, there's a few uh, papers written by a few uh, uh, political science professors at UC Riverside trying to look at the state immigration laws that have been passed in this country since about 2004. So you the Arizona laws, multiple ones that were passed, uh, Georgia, South Carolina, Mississippi, Alabama, and some other laws. And what they uh, found was that the, fl the rate of flow to areas that had not received hardly any immigrants at all prior to this was a pretty good predictor uh, in this literature of where these types of laws were passed. But just like Michael said, the contact theory, if you waited a certain amount of time, those things, uh, there was not a reaction in that regard. Or if you got a point that a place that had a lot of uh, immigration for multiple, for, for decades or centuries before, you uh, did not have that type of reaction. And if you think about the South, where a lot of these laws were passed, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, these are areas that had not seen an inflow of immigration from abroad since the early 19th century in any kind of significant number. So this was really sort of a cultural shock in a lot of ways. And California is another example of this in the mid-90s and 94. So there's a vast literature in political science about why it is uh, Hispanics in California went Democratic when they did, and they basically say it's because the Republican Party declared war on them uh, at a very stupid time in demographic history. But there's also some evidence that uh, California went from one of the least um, racially diverse and ethnically diverse states to one of them to the most in a very rapid period of time, and people freaked out about that. So maybe the answer is to have a steady flow from lots of different places to lots of different places in the U.S. at a rate so that once you get to a certain uh, a point, people are used to their new neighbors, and they don't freak out in that kind of way. But thank you very much. It was an excellent point. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, this gentleman right here. Wait, wait one second for the mic, sorry. Yeah, Fred Trace Remy. And uh, uh, the conventional wisdom uh, politically is that uh, Democrats would tend to be on the side of granting citizenship to the 11 million undocumented, uh, and that would expand their voter base. Re Republicans tend to be a little less enthusiastic of that because they might, they might increase uh, Democratic voters. And I just wondered how your narrative kind of fits in with this conventional wisdom. Does it agree with that? Does it, does it just your, your comments on this. I would say our work on, on economic freedom as it relates to it is that it doesn't because it's not clear to me that the Republican Party is any more in favor of free markets than the De Democratic Party. And I'm particularly persuaded of that during a presidential cycle. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so uh, um, ba based on um, that point, there is an interesting paper by these fellows, again, at UC, uh, University of California, Riverside, uh, where they take a look at this. So a certain amount of immigration up to a point, it's not just the immigrants who affect the institutions through voting, but also the way in which natives react to these immigrant presence here and how they change uh, their voting patterns. So we mentioned earlier the impact of immigration on uh, the social welfare state in Europe and how, uh, just to give you an example, there was a poll of Norwegians that was done asking, do you support a basic minimum guaranteed income uh, for everybody in your country, and 66% said yes. And then they asked the same question. They said, well, you know, immigrants and uh, minorities are going to be able to get that too, and support for that dropped to below 40% uh, in the same poll. So there, 
is a period, a point at which the native reaction to foreign immigrants combines in such a way so that support for the Republican Party or other sort of right-wing parties boosts by natives in an amount more than what they lose from sort of maybe left-wing entering immigrants. But there is a point where that goes the opposite way past a certain amount of a, a huge surge. So uh, if certain right-wing parties in the United States were a little bit more strategic, they could be sort of moderately opposed to a flow of immigration, pick up all those dissatisfied voters, but not be very angry or propose uh, policies that would do significant harm to immigrants and therefore not lose their votes so catastrophically and probably come out much ahead in terms of that. But uh, thank you very much. And uh, with that, we're going to have to um, uh, wrap up uh, this conference. Uh, as we know from this presidential election cycle, American electorate is probably more interested in this topic than it has been uh, for a century. Uh, it is my hope that the great research that was presented today by all of these panelists and that we will be uh, publishing in the near future, as well as the work that they will continue to do through the rest of their careers and they've done before this, uh, will hopefully have an impact on the very least at informing our policymakers and informing the electorate so that we, uh, the government makes some wiser decisions going forward on this policy uh, than it has in the past. Uh, and I want to say thank you to all of the presenters uh, today, some of whom came from across town, some of whom came from across the country uh, for coming here today and presenting. And I want to invite all of you to please join us outside uh, in the Winter Garden here uh, for beverages and snacks. So thank you very much.